0: Was going to say, I'm convinced by you, I'm convinced by Sylvain, this is a big damn deal.
1: Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. We are excited to have you back. I'm Scotty Greenwood with the Canadian American Business Council, and I am joined with the ever-fabulous Chris Sands. Hi, Chris.
0: Hi, Scotty. Glad to be back.
1: Glad glad to be back together, get the band back together. We are going to talk today uh, about a very interesting issue. We've talked about it before, and we're going to continue the conversation with a Canadian perspective. We like to have a U.S. perspective, a Canadian perspective on all these issues. It's the Columbia River Treaty, and uh, we've got a very special and very insightful guest to talk about, uh, to talk with us today. And Chris, why don't I turn it over to you to both introduce our distinguished diplomat and also to introduce the issue?
0: Sure. Well, fantastic. Thank you, Scotty. So uh, our guest today is Canada's Consul General in Denver, uh, Sylvain Fabi. And Sylvain is somebody who, uh, those of us who follow Canada's relations know, because for a time he was running the North American policy shop within uh, Global Affairs Canada. Um, He has been uh, a departmental advisor for the Minister of International Trade. We always have these trade issues going back and forth. Has a very distinguished career uh, as as a professional Canadian diplomat. But where it really comes together is in the negotiation of the Columbia, Columbia River Treaty. Now the treaty has been around for a long time, but gets renewed uh, periodically, and we're in middle of a negotiation, as some of our previous episodes had covered, on uh, new distribution and and some of it is about the water that flows some of it about is about the electricity that is generated and something some of it is about the ecosystem the fish the wildlife and how our shared management of this waterway which goes back to the to the 1950s can be amended for a new century and These are not easy talks uh, a lot. We've had some great discussions here, but now I think to get a Canadian perspective on just why this is so important and uh, why we haven't finished resolving it yet.
1: That's exactly right, Chris. So um, welcome, Mr. Consul General. Maybe you could start us off by giving us just a little bit of what is the Columbia River Treaty? Like what's it all about briefly? And then what's your point of view on where it is? We'd love to hear from you on that.
2: Yes, uh, thank you, uh, uh, both of you, for uh, this very kind introduction. I'm, I'm, I'm always surprised when people say things like that, that they're actually talking about me, but um, I, I appreciate that. The, the Columbia River Treaty was negotiated in the early 1960s um, for, two, for two reasons at the time. The first one um, was due to the fact that too often, especially on the US side, we saw um, flooding, some of it catastrophic, uh, due to uh, the the snow melting in the spring and rushing down the the Columbia River, right? So one of the first reasons to to try to find solutions between Canada and the U.S. was to minimize the risk of uh, flooding happening um, due to uh, the snow melting and the water rushing down. The other... um, reason to do that is the Columbia River is an a magnificent river for many, many, many reasons, but one of them is hydroelectric production capacity, right? So, but but in order to be able to maximize the um, production of electricity, you need certain conditions. And Canada and the U.S. Uh, entered into a negotiation not only to avoid flooding happening in the U.S., but also to try to maximize hydroelectricity production uh, in the U.S. So these were the two pillars of of the treaty. And um, despite the fact that both in Canada and in the U.S., a lot of things are being done uh, regarding ecosystems, unfortunately, the treaty did not contemplate um the environment and the ecosystems uh, when it was negotiated in the 60s. Uh, and also, uh, you won't be surprised to hear that um, uh, First Nations, or, or as you call them in the United States, tribes were, were not involved, were not consulted, were, were did not have to say much, despite the fact that they were quite severely affected by the implementation of of the treaty, right? So so the treaty now has been running for uh, 60 years. The treaty itself, almost 60 years, the treaty itself does not end unless one of the two signatories decides to cancel the treaty, to, to terminate the treaty, right? However, one part of the treaty in 2024 will come to an end. What is this? It's a flood risk management system that was negotiated by Canada and the US. It was a more predictable flood risk management regime that was negotiated that would that would last for 60 years until 2024. And the US paid at the time $64 million to Canada for the right to occupy space behind our dams, fill up and, and down our reservoirs in, in order to minimize the risk of flooding in the US. So that part, that what we call assured flood control uh, management comes to an end in 2024. Now the treaty has, has a provision that will allow the US to receive some flood risk protection from the management of the dams in Canada but in a lot less predictable more ad hoc manner that's not good it's not good for the US it's not something that would really be uh, optimal for Canada either so that's where we are we are renegotiating trying to negotiating to modernize the treaty in order to have a treaty that is a little bit more modern takes into consideration you know the evolution of things climate science, um, inclusion of uh, indigenous nations in the process of, of this whole management.
0: Um, Sylvan, so, so that's, that's a very good framing of it. It, it strikes me that it, this is what makes this a unique setting. Obviously we have the Niagara Falls dams, which were generating shared electricity for a long time on the Great Lake St. Lawrence system, but there we haven't had the issues of flooding it's mostly about you know power and we actually have different parts of the of the falls that we're damming and then, if you go a little bit further west, we famously have the Red River that connects up to Winni- Winnipeg and uh, and beyond. There is regular flooding there, and that's been an issue in, in recent years. But the river itself is not a big hydro river; it's it's more farther up that Manitoba Hydro operates. So you see here something which is unique in the combination of these things in in one big uh, one big treaty, uh, pulling it all together. It, you mentioned though, and this is where I wanted to, um, to pick up, you mentioned the new players, and this is something that I think um, both countries have been slow to deal with. With the um, Pacific Salmon Treaty in the 1990s, there was discussion of First Nations rights, uh, indigenous rights, and also labor unions in that case, uh, regarding fishing. How have these new actors affected the negotiation? Have they have they made a splash with a big voice? Are they tentative in any way? Is there feeling that they're newcomers and maybe should just uh, sit and watch? How do the diplomats interact with these communities, and and how has that dynamic been?
2: Yeah, that that that's a very good question, and I'm very happy that that you're asking it because, for me, in in my role in in the treaty, uh, I feel that this is such an important a part of it. I'm gonna to speak to the Canadian um approach to this. I can't I, I could, but I don't think it would be appropriate for me to speak uh, of, of the US's approach. The US is 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 there are differences in our constitutional and, and, and legal obligations, responsibilities, etc. So I'll stick to Canada, right? So what what we did in um in uh, in Canada is from the very, very, very onset, we um we have been working with um the indigenous nations the first nations indigenous nations in the basin the 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 the, the Tunaka nation the uh, siks okanagan and the Sequepam um to get them involved in in what we do and and our our relationship evolved over time right um to the point where A, now i am very happy to say that and and, and my, my Indigenous colleagues would repeat it. I'm not speaking for them. They would repeat it. They are involved in every single thing that we do. Every single decision of what we should do, what is good for us, for us being the whole of Canada and then BC and then Indigenous nations, um, every single idea that we have in terms of positioning vis-a-vis the US, they are involved. We're not consulting with them. They're involved in the whole thing and, and their voice is, is heard. I am I feel very confident, at least in my ears, they are heard at the same level as, as that of any other interlocutor, right? So um, we've engaged with them very significantly. They are present at the negotiation table with the US. They are formally called observers, um, I believe they are more than observers. Uh, I can tell you that they observe and 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 give us uh, their advice and piece of their mind when it's necessary, with only one caveat: when we sit down to negotiate with the U.S. in order to have a coherent voice, um, the uh, and and to respect international law and everything, there's only one interlocutor, which is the federal government in me. But. But here's the thing, sometimes we make presentations on some issues, and it's some of these issues, very important one, ecosystem being one. It's actually the indigenous nations who are doing the work and making their presentation at the table, right? So we're we're very proud of that. Um it's 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 difficult. It's difficult for everybody, right? Um I know that when it was first talked about that the indigenous nations would Sit at the table uh, with us, representing their nation, not as a token indigenous person. A lot of people were nervous, saying, "You're you're creating a a, um, a precedent." And and one day in a meeting, I told that person, I said, "Well, I sure hope I am creating a precedent, because if I'm not, then then nothing changes." And I felt very 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 confident in that because. I only had to listen to what my prime minister has said publicly at the UN, et cetera, everywhere. And, and I know where I knew that I was on solid ground. And I was told also on solid ground. minister Freeland was very much involved in, in our work and in, in, including indigenous nations in the equation. And, and I know we're doing the right, thing. I know we're doing the right thing. I've, I've always known, right. But, But uh, I know that we have support for that.
0: Now, just one quick follow up on that, because one of the key pieces, as you mentioned, was flood control. And I wonder if you could talk uh, basically not so much as a negotiator, but as just an educator on this. How is how is climate change altering the significance of of flood control? And I think there there as a layman, I would say, well, maybe it makes flooding less predictable because you know we're seeing snowfalls and other things changing but maybe that's not a, a very informed opinion in an era of climate change to what extent is that a factor as we think about flood control and the potential impact going forward well you know
2: since we're talking about british columbia you need only look at last summer and this fall okay obviously you can see that but maybe perhaps in a in a more um oriented more towards what we're doing on the Columbia river i said earlier that you know a a lot of the behavior for lack of a better word of the Columbia river hinges on snowfall and and the timing of the melt and the freshet in the spring right well um i'm not an expert so i'm not going to try to throw figures at you but we do know that there we are beginning to see changes in terms of how much snow is falling? What kind of snow? How early? Do we only have one freshet or do we have two? Or, you know, the timing of these old things. Obviously, there is an impact. The problem we have, and and, 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 and that's okay to have problems, is it's very hard to say, oh, because um, a lot of people often say, are you guys considering climate change in your work? And we say, yes, we are, but but we don't have a crystal ball, right? So if the climate's going to change, by definition, it's hard to predict. So what we would like to have, and and we've we, we've seen this in 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 many uh, whether it's in the work of, of uh, on other rivers or environmental work done uh, on, on in other um, in other aspects of the environment and then water is 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 to make sure that whatever we agree upon as we modernize the treaty will be. Adaptable and flexible, based on the change. Right? You can't guess the change. You 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 could give it a shot, but you know it's like gambling, right? But what you can do is say, let's make sure we provide the treaty with some flexibility that if if things change in in fifteen years, uh, we can address it uh, in, in in a certain way. So we are we are definitely uh, thinking about that. Uh, indigenous nations i will not surprise you are quite sensitive to that um part of our team of negotiation and and uh, on the canadian side of course environment uh, canada is is um, is is helping us and it's certainly the same with the provincial representatives, right So uh, we're we're trying to take that into consideration, trying to make a treaty that will allow for flexibility.
1: So thanks for outlining kind of who's at the table, uh, Consul General. I have a couple of... Um, questions about that. Well, one is, I think Chris and I would love to have another podcast on this subject with Indigenous leaders. So we'll talk to you offline about that, because I think it would be good um, to have their voices directly. And I I appreciate very much they're at the table. So just to to clarify, so you're the Consul General of Canada in Denver, and you're also one of the leading experts uh, on this Columbia River Treaty. Are you still the lead negotiator? Like, do you wear two hats now, or just as a practical matter, have you handed it back? I know you're exercising diplomacy I you and I were together last summer in Montana. you gave a, a really powerful presentation on the Columbia River treaty. but I just wonder like how does it fit in with your current portfolio? Are you doing both or who like, Who's who in the zoo? And one of the reasons I ask about that also is I just uh, have spent some time with Senator Cantwell and Senator Reich. And they're also two United States senators from the region, very interested in this and very engaged in how it goes. So just trying to, for our listeners, understand who's who and who's doing what, who you know, all of that sort of thing. Can you kind of walk us through that?
2: Absolutely. And, and I'm glad you're saying that because in everything I've said so far, I have underplayed the role of of British Columbia in that, right? Uh, Just just to add to the history of things, once the treaty was negotiated with the US, Canada also signed an agreement with BC clarifying, you know, who does what and how and for what. Because obviously Canada is not in the business of building dams and managing water flows. This is a provincial responsibility. So obviously, what, what the treaty does, Canada signed the treaty, but BC implements the entire treaty and gets all the benefits, like uh, whether it's the Canadian entitlement, whether it's the payment that was given originally for flood control. So obviously, in the negotiation, British Columbia is key, right? And, and when I, as a negotiator, need technical advice, on these things um bc hydro which which is involved in in managing implementing the treaty provides uh, uh most of the expertise you know on 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 modeling and things like that so british columbia is uh is 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 key to this and and provides a lot of expertise and and kathy eichenberger who is their lead on on the columbia river treaty i am not shy to admit that she is the heart and soul of this whole process right and and don't kid yourself the americans know that too but it's fine because Kathy and I work hand in hand so to come back i am the uh, the consul general for canada in denver but i am also still remaining the consul general of uh, uh, the the chief negotiator for the columbia river treaty i wear two hats some people um are uh, maybe naive enough to accept two jobs <laughs> i just did
1: <laughs> i'm i'm one of those people and so is sand so we all have a few uh, hats that yeah. we wear yeah <laughs> but,
2: but here's the thing uh, i am supported by a super duper team at global affairs in ottawa bc is there bc hydro indigenous nations so it works it really works and and we're able to do uh to do both, uh, I'm able to do both in 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 what I hope is 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 a successful way.
1: Th- that's thanks for outlining that, and just to just to follow up on on one question. Now, I, most negotiators I know um, prefer to negotiate at the table, and they say we're not going to negotiate out. You know, they used to say we're not going to negotiate in the newspapers. So maybe the modern corollary is we're not going to negotiate via podcast. So I I, I understand that you're not here to uh, negotiate, but but you've heard the previous podcast we had um, on this from a U.S. perspective, and I wonder if you could just, just for the benefit of our listeners who aren't negotiators and who maybe don't follow this, or maybe they're not from the region, if there's one thing that the U.S. says about this Columbia River Treaty that drives you crazy from your point of view, what is it?
2: Yeah, you're right. I'm I'm not negotiating publicly. I would never do so. You you'll notice that I have not given a single comment on negotiations and I won't. However, I can comment on things that are said publicly. Right. Um, I mean, the the, the, the first thing first I'll say that this treaty is based on sharing equitably the benefits accrued from the treaty. That that's the premise of the whole thing. And that's what we have to maintain uh, in, in, in a modernized treaty, right? So, uh, I hear sometimes people say, well, why should we keep paying Canada? You know, the, the dams have been paid for. So, my answer to that is, okay, let me make you an analogy. You have an apartment building. I rent an apartment in your building. So, when you stop paying your, um, your mortgage, do I stop paying you? What the U.S. has paid for is not to build the dams. Canada did not enter a treaty to get money to build dams. We may have benefited from that money to, to, to do that, but the treaty was the U.S. pays for occupying space behind dams which, 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 which flood uh, an area, and it goes up and down and up and down, and it has an environmental impact. That's what the US is paid for. So if the dams have been paid for, okay, but you're not paying for the dams, you're paying for space behind the dam, and you're paying for Canada managing the flows so that the water accumulating behind the dams is released in, in a timing and a fashion that will maximize hydroelectric production in the US and minimize the flood risk to, in the US. So if you're paying for space and management of water, you're not paying for that. There's another thing that I hear publicly often is the fact that Canada, the US is paying too much for the entitlement. And I say, well, the way the treaty works is Canada receives for the entitlement. This is the entitlement uh, is the, the, the payment in electricity that Canada receives for Canada receives uh, as a result of the US being able to produce more electricity. So if we manage the water in a fashion that the US can produce a hundred units more electricity. The U.S. gives us back 50 units, right? So when you say um, the U.S. is paying too much, we say, wait a minute, you're paying us half of the potential electricity that you can produce due to our management. So, so in, in a way, uh, you, you're paying, you're giving us half a benefit. Now, sometimes the, the water is repurposed in the U.S., for fish flows, for irrigation, for navigation, etc. But but that's a choice that is made in the U.S., right? And the other thing in relation to the entitlement, I have heard publicly, I'm not talking about the table. People say Canada receives 300 to 350 million U.S. dollars a year for the entitlement. And I'm like, whoa, I wish that's what we received. The average per year in Canada, and you can see the figure, because Canada, BC usually sells that electricity back somewhere to the US. And it's in their public accounts, so you can see that on the internet. And so the benefit in Canada when we sell the electricity is it has averaged 128 million Canadian dollars per year, so 100 million US dollars. So it's nowhere near 300 to 350 million. So. I often say that in public because I want to make sure that the people who listen to this uh, you know get get accurate figures because of course if if you think you're paying 350 million dollars US for something yeah you could say it's expensive because in fact that's not what that's not what's happening So these are a couple of things that I like when I have a chance to 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 publicly uh, talk about uh, the um, the Columbia River Treaty. These are a couple of of misconceptions that I like to to address uh, when we do that.
0: Well. Sylvain, so we definitely uh, benefit from that explanation. Um, here on Kudisa Street, we have a lot of uh, interest in those details. And I think it was great to have them spelled out. But now I'll admit something. I am one of those terrible sports fans. Scotty is much better. But I tend to let the NHL season go just kind of looking a little bit at the paper. And then when it's the playoffs, I start paying attention. Now, the negotiation this round of the update for the treaty started in 2013. Partly, you know, looking ahead to that 2024 date. Um, are we nearing the playoffs? Are we going to make it to 2024? Like, is this time to really sort of gear up our our, our fandom and pay attention? Or or is this just a slow boil? It's not going to have a sort of playoff finish. Uh, how would you describe our timing now as we get closer to 2024?
2: Well, the mere fact that we're closer to 2024 indicates that there, there is a um, We have to take that into consideration, right? That's for sure. Um, We had a a one and a half year hiatus. Whatever the reasons are, we had elections in the U.S., elections Canada, blah blah blah, whatever, right? So that certainly did not arrange, uh, did not uh, speed up the negotiations. We have reengaged recently. We met. In December and and a couple of weeks ago, virtually, but it doesn't matter. We're, we're doing work, and I can tell you that both sides are are working uh, towards um, a resolution. But what we're working towards now is is I know it I know it sounds um, sometimes it sounds like a lame explanation, but a lot of the data that we need on both sides to 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 agree on, on a renewed treaty, uh, some of that data is ever, evergreen and we're working on, we're kind of developing it as as we are negotiating. Some people say you could have done that years ago, maybe, but some of it, no. So that's one part of the reasons why why it's, it's sometimes we have to stop for a little moment, say, okay, you wanna know this? We'll go back and produce it, but you know, if it involves modeling, uh, etc., you need engineers. Sometimes we 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 have to hire people to 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 provide give us a hand in, in coming up with these um, with these uh, figures and data. So that that's sometimes what what um, slows down the process. I can tell you that in Canada, and I know it's the case in the U.S. too, but I can't speak for them. We are determined to proactively, open-mindedly uh, engage uh, in, 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 in a way that will produce a modernized um, instrument that will be beneficial for Canada. Of course, we're Canada, but also it uh, will be, be- uh, mutually beneficial because if it's not beneficial to the US, th- there will be no agreement. So we're, we're trying to be as constructive as possible. Um, and and I think the two delegations when we engage are the e- engagement is is good it's it's uh, constructive etc but it's also a negotiation right so you, you have to keep that in mind
1: so uh, thanks for that and you know this will just be our last question I think we're coming towards the end of our opportunity here um, to talk to you and and I'm really grateful i I want to ask you you know we mentioned you're you're here with your hat on as, Columbia River Treaty, but we we mentioned that you also are the Consul General, and you and I, the last I mentioned we saw each other in Montana, but then a couple weeks later last summer, we saw each other in South Dakota, and we were both talking to the Council of State Governments, and you had that other hat on, the Consul General. So I think I want to ask a wrap-up question that uses both your hats, which is, when you think about the whole panoply of Canada-US issues, and we deal with them a lot here on Canusa Street where does this one rank? You know, like how should people think about this? Because, you know, when we were renegotiating, when our countries were renegotiating the North American Free Trade Agreement, it was pretty much number one top of mind for like a year, right? I mean, that's a little bit of an oversimplification, but there are big things going on right now in the trade world and in the foreign policy world. Um, So as you think about the broad Canada-US relationship, From your point of view as consul general how do you rank order how do you stack this one i know it's important i know it's crucial but in in the scheme of things where do you place this
2: the issue with the columbia river is it has obviously a very clear geographic element attached to it right it concerns some states uh, out west uh of course washington state um, oregon uh idaho uh, montana because it, in in montana they have the the libby dam which is uh, linked to the treaty so it's an important issue uh because it's big it involves it involves um, um Protection against flooding. I mean, that's you're talking about people's livelihoods and and even sometimes people's lives, and and it involves uh, a, a significant sector. Um, I always give as an example to put things in perspective. I do that mainly in Canada. To put things in perspective, the the installed electricity capacity on the Columbia River is by and large twice. The installed capacity in the whole network at James Bay. People don't realize that.
1: And James biggest... James Bay being hydro Quebec going into New England and New York, right? Okay. And right. we okay.
2: have five, six, seven dams there. I mean, just just the um, the the Grand Coulee Dam. I think I, I, I'm always careful when I give figures, but I think it has a capacity of eight thousand megawatt, right? remember that once you become above 2000 megawatt you're a big dam right so there's a lot so it's an important economic sector it provides electricity to a big um, population in that area where does it stand i mean obviously because of the geographic implications it doesn't stand stand on top of the issues but to the to the to the people in that area it's i would say it's probably top 1 or 2 Cool. Uh, because of of the implications, overall in the U.S. it goes down a little bit, but but sometimes it is raised in Washington. So.
1: I was just going to say it's top one or two for a couple of very powerful United States senators, which means it goes top of the order, top of the batting yes. order in general because of uh, the ranking member on foreign relations, which is Senator Risch, And because, of Senator course, of, of the Washington delegation and their leadership. So Republicans and Democrats uh, in leadership positions and big committees in Congress care about this. So, yeah, I hear you. Chris, I'm yeah. sorry. Over to you, my friend.
0: No, no, I was going to say, I'm convinced by you, I'm convinced by Sylvain, this is a big damn deal.
1: (laughs) It's a big damn deal. (laughs) With that, uh, Consul General, we'll give you the last word, and we're just on the way out. We want to say thank you. Thank you for taking time to uh, help us get a little bit smarter on this big damn deal. So over to you.
2: Yes, it was a pleasure to be here. I always appreciate uh, the opportunity to... To uh, constructively pass on messages uh, uh, regarding what we do, uh, it's it's not always easy to do that. So uh, thank you for for giving me the opportunity, and 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 happy uh, to participate uh, in the future on this or any other kind of issues where where I could be of interest to you. So thanks.
1: Well, you live in a very interesting region and it's particularly interesting in the winter when we can travel. So Chris, we may have to have an in-person Canusa Street recording. I don't know, Aspen, Vale, Beaver Creek, something like that. Canusa Street hits the slopes. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) Thanks very much, both of you. It's always great to be with you. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, Help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.